So what are we doing? I don't remember. <laughs> you just called me and told me to start recording, and I don't know why. I have no idea what we're doing. So how are you this evening, Brick Road? Well, I have the aforementioned five-gallon jug of pretzels, so things must be going all right. You planning on working on that through this podcast? Probably not, because I find that the crunching sounds annoy people. You don't want to do an ASMR thing tonight? (laughs) Does that really qualify? Just somebody crunching pretzels very close to your ear? Oh, yeah. People totally eat on ASMR stuff. It's not just whispering. I've seen some weird things. I've seen stuff like crinkling tinfoil and that kind of stuff. But the sounds of people eating is grotesque. (laughs) And I don't find it calming at all. Nothing will get me to turn off a podcast or like a YouTube show faster than somebody eating on the mic. And I know some people do it as a gag and it drives me crazy every time. Also burping into the mic. So I'm frustrated this evening. Is it because you don't have a five-gallon jug of pretzels? Well, now it is. You're just adding to my frustrations. Thank you. I tried to perform surgery on my PS2, and I was all excited, and I was like, oh, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to be able to get on the podcast and be like, I fixed my PS2, and I'm so happy, and it didn't work. So either I got sent a bad laser assembly from China that I waited like a friggin' month on, or... The problem is somewhere else in the PS2, so I'm probably just going to end up buying a used PS2 for like 50 bucks or something. I would think that purchasing a new laser assembly for a disc-reading console like that is probably more expensive than just replacing the console. It's like 20 bucks to order this thing with with free shipping. Oh, okay. Well, but I'm looking at it on Amazon here, and yeah, people are selling like refurbished slim PS2s for over $100? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Oh, wow. It's a mad, mad, mad world. So I'm going to keep hammering on it. Um, Maybe literally. (laughs) (laughs) That's ASMR right there. Just the sound of somebody bludgeoning a console in the background. If this console is for real dead, I may have to set up a camera and record it. (laughs) With a very close microphone. Years ago, I got my PS3 a little late. A couple of years after it had been out. I wanted to get one of the first generation PS3s because it plays PS2 games. Mm-hmm. And that's the PS3 that I still have today. Still works fine. Hasn't broken. Nothing's Wait, wrong Wait, so with you, it. you got a first gen PS3 with PS2 backwards compatibility after the fact? It was about $400, I think. I was going to ask how many limbs you had to give up for it. I bought it on eBay and I was just going to sell it. I was like, I don't need this PS2 anymore. I actually bought one of these little memory card transfer devices and transferred all my saves over to the PS3. And it was around like this time of year, around like September, maybe early October. And one of Peanut's friends bought it from me for like $60. Mm Mm-hmm. And she was going to give it to her kids for Christmas. And I remember all I could think of, that is the saddest Christmas I've ever heard. Aww. Merry Christmas, kids. Here's a seven-year-old out-of-date console that doesn't play anything new. Maybe her kids were really hip and were into retro games and they just needed a PS2 for their collection. Maybe they already had like an NES and a SNES and they're like, man, if I could just get a PS2. This must have been like 2007, 2008. Anybody at that time calling the PS2 retro, oh. all they deserve for Christmas is a sock in the mouth. No, you know what, though? I can see that, though, because I'm one of these people who generally buys PlayStations very late and then just scoops up stuff on sale. So mm. especially a parent with young kids. Yeah, no, that's prime time to buy PS2 and buy like $10 bargain games. My friends that have kids, like my D&D group, like their kids all have Nintendo Switches and they all have iPads and they all like they all have the cutting edge of video game technology. 
My kid will have that because I will have that. So that's how that's going to happen. But my kid will not personally own a modern console until he can buy one on his own. <laughs> now, when I was a young child, eight, nine years old or so, around the age where like you might want to start playing with high-end electronics, mm-hmm. we didn't have the state-of-the-art video games in the house but we did have a state-of-the-art cd player oh that i wasn't allowed to touch (laughs) on pain of having my hide tanned my father would not let me go near this cd player right are you gonna do the same thing with your switch it's hard to say because for one thing my kid has not shown much interest in video games yet i mean he's three and a half so yeah it's a little early I mean, I got the uh, NES and SNES Classic specifically thinking these are solid pieces of plastic that a four-year-old would not be able to destroy too easily. So I'm going to try and see if I can get them started on the classics. That's kind of an interesting discussion that I was wanting to have tonight anyway, because I recently got a Switch and I hate it. Uh huh. One of the things I think is terrible about it is when I was a child... The video games were these big plasticky things. Mm -hmm. And you could destroy it, but only by, like, actively trying to destroy it. Correct. And then ten years later, all the games came on CDs. And the CDs are fragile, but they're not, like, so fragile that you can accidentally break them. Like, they're just fragile enough that you know you want to treat them with some delicacy. Okay, sidebar, because from the people I know who had kids in the CD-DVD era, which I guess we're still technically in, but most people are going digital or playing the Switch with the little carts. But when the slot-reading consoles were relatively new, I can't tell you how many horror stories I heard about people's kids trying to feed their PS3 a peanut butter sandwich and stuff (laughs) like that. The PS3 is destroyed. Yeah. But the discs are probably still, like, a kid's not accidentally going to swallow a disc. No, probably not. I kind of had this thought with the old DS. The first time I bought a DS game and opened it up, I'm like, that's not the game. Surely not. Because <laughs> it's just this tiny little... And then the Switch is like one quarter the size of the original DS games. My friend has four or five-year-old kids. They're going to swallow that. No, they won't. Have you tasted a Switch cartridge? I have not. I have read the articles, and one of my friends in my D&D group says that she has tasted it. It's real bad. I've done it before, on a dare, when I was drunk. I'm not proud. Should I go taste one? Go taste one. Go taste one, okay. and then let's let's get the asthmar of you tasting your switched. Well, I'll mute the microphone, so you guys don't have to hear me eating. <laughs> okay, so first of all, what vintage are you going with this evening? Well, does it matter? Like, do the different games have different flavors? I don't know. We should do a Pepsi challenge with your games and see if you can taste the difference. All right, so I have here my switch of... Mario Odyssey. Uh Uh-huh. First of all, a a kid could totally swallow this. Oh, absolutely. Even if they don't, like, it's going to get lost in a backpack or swept under a rug or... This thing could be so easily lost. Mm Mm-hmm. And it costs $60. Yep. All right. I'm going to lick this thing. Okay. And then I'm going to try to describe what the flavor is like. Okay. It tastes like plastic. And then there's a very mild, like, bitter flavor on it. A mild bitter flavor? It's very mild. Really? Has my Mario Odyssey cart, like, lost its pungency? How much has your dog licked that cart? Zero. (laughs) Zero times. I was expecting, like, spoiled eggs or, like, curdled cheese. No, it's... It just tastes like you sprayed Lysol all around your house. Mm Mm-hmm. And then just walking through your house, you have that, like, Lysol spray flavor inside of your mouth if you breathe through your mouth. Oh, yeah. 
a sip of water, which I'm going to do right now. Go for it. <laughs> there is a 0% chance that that taste is going to dissuade a child from swallowing this cartridge. I don't know. Maybe you're just less uh, sensitive to bitter. It was much more of a gaggy reflex when I had tasted it. That's what I was told. Like I said, I have a friend in my D&D group who tasted it, and she said it was unbearable. But I don't know, man. Like, I wouldn't want to, like, put this flavoring on, like, a chicken parmesan. But I think if a child put this in their mouth accidentally, like, the shock of it not just tasting like regular plastic might cause them to spit it out. Do you have the hiccups now? No, I'm just burping a lot. Okay. (laughs) Because you mentioned it. And I have to mute my microphone when I burp. I'm very self-conscious about it because you've mentioned it. <laughs> if you had two nine-year-olds in a room with your a copy of one of your Nintendo Switch games, mm-hmm. and one of them dared the other one to swallow it, mm-hmm. this flavor would not dissuade a nine-year-old at all. How much money do you think would have to be involved with the dare in order for them to get that thing down? Or do you think it would even take money? You think just the double dog would get it done? Zero dollars, because nine-year-olds are idiots. I was nine years old, and my classmates played this prank on me. They had this like rubber cement that we were using for some kind of craft and they told me to eat some and they told me it tastes just like honey. Uh And I ate some and I said, this doesn't taste like honey at all. And they say, oh, that was the wrong bottle. Eat it from this bottle. And I did. And it didn't taste like honey either. I think I was 20 years old before I looked back on that. and I was like, wait a minute. That wasn't supposed to taste like honey. Those kids were liars. Wait a second. I actually told my nephew, who was 12, this prank. Because he tried to get me to do the, um, if your hand is bigger than your face. He tried to get me to do that. He literally tried to pull down my ass. I said, who the hell do you think you're talking to? <laughs> but then I told him, I was like, what you do is this. I got a kid real good with this one time. We are eating soft serve ice cream. And I told him, you know, it's the damnedest thing. It tastes great, but for some reason it smells awful. And sure enough, he stuck his nose right in his cone and I popped his elbow and got ice cream all over his face. So I'm really hoping I'm going to be the best uncle and get him to do that to one of his friends. (laughs) This goes the other way, too. Like sometimes a dare or a challenge or something will just sound so dumb that somebody wants to do it just because it's dumb. My brother was visiting me once. And my friends and I had spent all day watching Cinnamon Challenge videos. <laughs> and I'm going to explain the conversation to the best of my recollection. My In my memory, it's so vivid. The conversation verbatim was, hey, brother's name. Have you heard of the Cinnamon Challenge? No, I haven't. What is it? Let's do it. I'll do it right now. <laughs> and he did. And it was Fantastic. People have straight up ended up in the hospital trying that because they end up inhaling the cinnamon. And <laughs> Right, we have viewers. We should say, don't do this challenge. Please don't do this challenge. And now I'm going to describe how to do the challenge. <laughs> cinnamon, the problem is it gets in your mouth and it takes all the saliva you've ever formed since birth and sucks it up. Yes, retroactively. <laughs> you physically cannot swallow this hard, dry lump of cinnamon But it's in your mouth, and you cough, and now there's this cloud of cinnamon around your face. And that's the funny part. What you're supposed to do is just relax, leave the lump on your tongue, let your tongue form more saliva and soften it up, and after a minute or two, you can start swallowing it in small clumps. And that's how you can complete the cinnamon challenge. Still, please don't do it. How did we get here? 
I was going to explain why I didn't like the Switch. Oh, right. I want to clarify at first that playing the games on the Switch, I the games I have are fun. As a games machine, it passes beautifully. It's fine. But I can't get over how badly designed everything else about the physical console is. And just the size of the little cartridges. Right. Or just one element of that. Like, yeah, it's cool that we can get so much data on little tiny flash carts now. But everywhere in America, there are households that spent $60 on a Mario game for Christmas. And by December 27th, it was lost. And nobody has any idea where it is. Right. And maybe somebody finds it with a vacuum cleaner in April. (laughs) Before I bought the Switch, I was under the impression that this was a home console that could seamlessly be made into a portable. What the Switch actually is, is a purely portable device that has an HDMI out so you can plug into your TV. I think the way they get away with saying that it's a console you can take on the go versus a portable you can plug into your TV is the fidelity of it. Because up until this point, Nintendo, and remember, we're talking about Nintendo, had not produced a portable console with anywhere near the fidelity that the Switch has. Inherent in this is problems that I've noticed. I don't like using it as a portable because it's thin and it's not very ergonomic and it gets super hot super quickly. And the sides of the console are the controllers that you slide out. They kind of clack into place, which is one of... It's like their logo, right? Is a little animated clack. Right. Like, I'm not worried it's going to break off. But just the fact that there is any amount of give to the side of this portable makes me very uncomfortable while I'm playing it. And I don't like the sensation of it versus something like the Wii U tablet. Are you a white knuckle controller holder? Because I have an occasion, like, I've never thrown a controller, I've never broken a controller, but I've definitely given a controller a very solid squeeze before. No, I feel like I'm exactly the opposite. Like, I'm very ginger with my controllers. Like, I'm the kind of person, if I'm reading a paperback book, I've got to keep closing the book and make sure I'm not creasing the spine. Oh. <laughs> so I feel like I'm, I'm not, like, crushing my controllers, but I do have to shift my fingers a lot on this controller, because if I leave them in one place, they start to roast. I haven't had that issue, and I don't know if it's just that I'm not as sensitive to it as you, or if it's that... I don't know. I, I play my Switch almost exclusively portable. I've noticed it gets warm, uh, but I notice it gets warm on the back of the console, not in the controlly areas. That's where the console's resting, is against your fingers and the tops of the palms of your hand. Oh, do you fan your hand, your fingers all across the back of the Switch? Is that what you're doing? I mean, I try to hold it in lots of different positions because there is no comfortable position. So I'm constantly shifting in my weight and going back and forth. Interesting. I always found the DS line to be uncomfortable to hold. The Switch, I haven't had that problem with. My biggest issue with the Switch is, and I love the Switch, but I do play it almost exclusively portable, which makes me wish that it was ergonomically better as a portable, kind of like what you're saying. I wish that it had a D-pad. And they're coming out with the Switch Lite, which looks... Pretty good, actually. It's $199. It's a solid piece of plastic versus something with little slide-out sticks. It's got a real D-pad. That looks awesome. But one of the compromises they've made is it does not have an HDMI out, like, at all. And I'm like, why couldn't you just make the solid piece of plastic switch with an HDMI out? Do you not know the answer to that question? It's because they want you to buy both. They don't want you to buy one and have it fulfill all of your needs. They want you to buy it twice. Yeah, I could see that in a household where more than one person is using the Switch and they want to have a second Switch so they can be like, here, teenage kid, go play this one now, you know? 
So this is the next problem that I have with the Switch, is there's not really a console box like there is for the Wii U or the PS4, where you've got your box that you set down and you plug all the stuff into the box, right? Mm -hmm. What you have is this little docking station that feels like it weighs like 0.6 grams. There's no heft to this thing at all. No, it's mostly plastic. You clack the switch down and you open up this really cheap feeling door which shows a cavity inside of the docking station that you can plug your... It's impossible to plug anything into this docking station without using a hand to hold it down. (laughs) And then I have these really heavy-duty HDMI cables, and they're heavier than the docking station. So if I don't have a controller plugged into the front of my Switch, literally the front end of the Switch lifts up off my table because the weight of the cord pulling it from behind is just too much for it. It can't handle it. I do sort of wish that the dock had some heft to it. Like, I wish it just had, like, the simplest thing. I have, like, an office-style tape dispenser, and it's just a piece of plastic with a roll of tape in it, but it's got some heft to it. And if you shake it... There's your ASMR right there. Can you hear that? Oh, yeah, that's real comforting. Um... (laughs) It's got sand in it. It's just got a little base of sand in it. And I kind of wish that the Switch dock just had sand or something or just a piece of metal in the base to make it weighed down. Because I've had the same problem. Uh, Again, peril of having a kid. I've absolutely had him just brush by it and tip the whole thing over because it's a little off balance. (laughs) Probably the biggest issue that I had is that in the box, when you buy a Nintendo Switch, you don't get a good controller. Yeah. You get the two little, not they're not called Wiimotes anymore, but you get the two little remotes, mm-hmm. and then you get two little strips of plastic that you can kind of clack into them. Those are the worst. I hate that part. I've put those in a drawer and haven't seen them. <laughs> so, <laughs> And so playing a game like that is stupid, obviously, because you're holding the little Wiimotes, but they don't feel good like Wiimotes. They yeah. Have, they give you the little controller skeleton that you can plug the little Wiimotes into, and now you have... A pretty bad controller with buttons that don't feel right, and the controller is, like, bendy and slippy, just like playing with the Wiimotes docked into the actual tablet. Yeah. And that's a fail. Of course, for $60, you can go buy the Switch Controller Pro. Which, I mean, I did. There should be one of those in the box, but they saw the opportunity to milk 60 more dollars out of you. I didn't have $60. Oh, no. I have two good controllers for the Switch. They're both third-party. The first is... It looks like a GameCube controller, Mm -hmm. and I wish it was a little heavier, but other than that, it works perfectly. It works perfectly fine, has all the right buttons. I especially like it for Smash, because that's my preferred button layout for Smash Brothers. And then I bought an 8-bit dough SNES-style gamepad. Which I have one of those, too. They're excellent. (laughs) Yeah, that's really good. The D-pad has a little too much travel. Yeah, I've had issues with uh, having diagonal inputs registry that I don't want. So, like, sometimes Mario will duck when I don't want him to. But other than that, it's usually pretty good. Yeah, I use that for Mario Maker, and it's actually become my primary PC gamepad. Same. Ever since my Steam controller gave up the ghost. These are my trials and tribulations with the Nintendo Switch. I am a little resentful because when I bought my PS4, I opened the box... And it had the console, and it had a good controller, and I just plugged it all in, and I don't have to think about it. Whereas the Switch, like, even just switching out the little game cart, you gotta open that little rubber flap that feels like it's gonna come off. Uh, You gotta squeeze your fingernail down in the thing to get the game to pop out. Like, even that's an ordeal on the Switch. And have you ever tried to use the little kickstand? Because it's pretty awful, too. (laughs) Kickstand? (laughs) 
Yeah. Did you not know there's a kickstand on it? It's right on the back of your Switch. It's the thing that you can flop out and it'll stand up on your table, kind of. Wait, on like on the back of the portable device? Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Your SD card, I believe, is underneath it. Let me see here. Um, I don't think I've ever actually looked at the back of this thing. How do I pop it out? You just... Oh my god, there it is. Oh, look at that. <laughs> yeah, it's awful. That's terrible. You can't... No, you can't play games like that. It's not even at a good angle. <laughs> what is that for? No, I just... Okay, so what I do is I will lay the Switch flat on my desk. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe with a washcloth behind it to give it a little bit of an angle. And I can use that for when I play anything with a stylus. Which, the Switch doesn't come with a stylus. Can we get into that now, please? Oh, I'm upset that it doesn't have a little stylus holder because it should have a stylus. It should have its own little proprietary stylus holder built into it because mm -hmm. I'm with you. I know it's not a whatever it's called. I know it's a capacitive screen and not a whatever the DS had, but like it should still come with a stylus, like especially if they're going to sell you Mario Maker. I didn't know that there were different kinds of touchscreens. So I got the Switch, I got Mario Maker, I loaded it up, and I grabbed my trusty Wii U stylus, which has seen me through hundreds of hours of Mario Maker on the Wii U, and it doesn't work. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. I'm touching the touchscreen. <laughs> some research does reveal that the technology in the Wii U touchscreen and the DS touchscreen is different from in the Switch touchscreen, and it's also why a Wii U stylus won't work on, say, your phone or your iPad. Correct. So you have to buy these capacitive styluses with these, like, cool, spongy, rubbery bits on the end, and those will work just fine. Yeah, but they don't feel nearly as satisfying as using, like, a nice hard piece of plastic with, like, a nice point to it, you know? I don't know. I, I get an odd satisfaction out of using it. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like painting something with, like, a rubber sponge to me. I don't want to touch the screen with my gross, human, greasy, Cheeto dust finger in the first place. Yeah, that's one of my biggest problems with cell phone gaming, just in general, is like, I'm just sitting there swiping stuff with my gross, greasy finger, and I'm like, ugh. <laughs> it's like, I might as well be tonguing this screen, it's that gross. <laughs> I wonder if your tongue would work. Is it capacitive? I, I guess it I've, should be. I have already done a tongue experiment tonight, now it's your turn. <laughs> you let us know. <laughs> no. Digressing way back to the original, the reason I wanted to play my PS2 is I wanted to go and see what kind of state my old Final Fantasy XII save was in because I recently played and finished Final Fantasy XII on the Switch, the Zodiac Age port, and loved it. But up until playing this version, it was one of the games that I played and never finished because for whatever reason, it didn't click. And I'm not super sure why. I don't know how much of it is me changing and how much of it is the Zodiac Age port changing. Because there's a lot that I love about the Zodiac Age changes, but it can't be everything, right? That's a tricky question because Final Fantasy XII was a game that kind of nobody knew what to do with when it came out. It was so utterly different from previous Final Fantasy games. And the big joke at the time was that the game plays itself. All you do is kind of run around and you guys automatically fight the monsters and things. You have a lot of decision points in the game as far as developing your characters over the course of the adventures. But a lot of those decision points you're kind of making with very imperfect information mm -hmm. and kind of without much of a goal in mind. It's more like I've got this bucket of experience points and I might as well just push random buttons until I'm out of experience points. Yeah. 
What the Zodiac Age does is it takes a lot of those systems and streamlines them so you can at least see the decision directly in front of you. Right. Well, I've always said that one of my biggest problems with a lot of RPGs in general, especially like Western style RPGs, is choice paralysis. Like, if you give me an ocean of options, I'm never going to know what to do. But if you give me a character and you say, this character is a black mage and that's all they're going to be, go pick which spells you want to learn. I'm like, awesome, I can do that. And I think that that's one of the biggest things I like about the Zodiac Age changes. I would think that the choice paralysis would be worse in Zodiac Age versus the original. Because the original, like, you can't make the wrong choice. You mm-hmm. always will have enough experience points eventually to buy everything on the board. Whereas in Zodiac Age, you reach a point, you're like, I have to decide what class this character is. And there's no take backsies. Well, okay, first of all, there are take backsies on the Switch version. Yeah, kids today, my goodness. I know, which I'm actually grateful for because I made Fran something super unhelpful at one point, And then I was like, no, white mage. And I did it very quickly. <laughs> so I did agonize over my job selection. I looked online. I looked at FAQs. I looked at what synergizes well. Like, I mean, I put a lot of research into it. Okay, let me back up a little bit. I had to look it up. Final Fantasy XII came out in 2006. Yes. Believe it or not, in 2006, I was not a very seasoned RPG player because I skipped PlayStation. I played Final Fantasy II on the SNES and Final Fantasy III, but I actually didn't finish Final Fantasy III until years later. Uh, Final Fantasy II, I played and brute forced my way through. Chrono Trigger, I played, and Chrono Trigger is an easy game. And I played like Secret of Mana, which is more of an action RPG, but then I skipped everything Final Fantasy for a console generation. I bought a PlayStation 2 Slim and got Final Fantasy 12. So I had missed a huge chunk of RPG knowledge. And so I was just missing out on a lot of conventions and stuff that even Final Fantasy 12 stuck to. So guess what I did a lot of? I would buy license boards, I would buy equipment, and I'd hit that stupid optimize button, which is terrible on Final Fantasy XII. (laughs) So I had my dudes running around with, like, heavy armor, which is good, but not great in all situations. That's part of the reason why I want to load up my save file. Like, I don't know if I ever figured it out. I really want to explore this, but I can't right now. But it wasn't until much later. I played Final Fantasy backwards. I played Final Fantasy XII, then X, then VII, then IX. Like, that was my order. It was weird. I do wonder, like, how much of that evolution you actually did miss out on because of how different 12 is from what came before. Like, I can kind of see an evolution of game systems and such through 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, but then 12 is just a world different. And part of it, too, is I hadn't played really any Western RPGs at that point. And I know that some of the conventions about, you know, light armor, heavy armor, some of the stuff, it's not super Western RPG, but they're pulling from MMOs from Final Fantasy XI a little bit there. I do know that Final Fantasy XII has an in-game database that specifically outlines the differences of all the weapons and armor types. Mm-hmm. Like weapons in Final Fantasy XII, it's typically your stat versus some enemy stat. And which stats they are can change depending on what weapon you're equipping. Right. I think poles are a good example. Poles don't have very good attack power, but they hit enemy magic defense, not defense. So a high defense enemy, this is a very good weapon to use. You're going to get better damage than using a greatsword that has much higher attack power. 
The other problem was, as I spent so long trying to set up gambits and inevitably was always having issues with, you know, oh, he's not doing what I want him to do and this, that, and the other. And I just feel like I set my gambits up a lot better. Another thing, and I think this is unique to the Switch and maybe PS4 port, the ones that came last, but you can set up three different gambit sets, which is awesome. They didn't have that on PC yet, did they? Well, I played Zodiac Age on PS4. I don't think they had it there, but I might be misremembering. So I set up basically three Gambit sets, which was like my Grinding Against Dudes set, my boss set, and then my This Boss is Weird Just Attack set. See, I'm a Gambit tweaker anyway. Like, I'm constantly going into the menu and moving stuff around as I'm fighting monsters. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would do some degree of that, but I had like sort of my broad strokes would be, especially with, like, my mages and stuff. Like, I would have, okay, I want Fran to spot heal with Cura and keep Protect on. But then I'd go into a boss fight and, like, you use Kuraga and Protect Aga and Shell Aga and just keep us defended the whole time. Don't even attack. You don't even have an <laughs> attack command right now. We did warn these people that we would end up doing a Zodiac Age spoiler cast. <sighs> do we want to do, like, a mini spoiler cast? Because we've already been talking for like an hour. I don't think I'm armed for such a thing because I haven't played Zodiac Age in well over a year. <laughs> I have two plans. One yeah. is to eventually get a working PS2 and then record myself exploring my save file. Because I'm 90% sure that save file is either in the Pharos Tower or I bailed on it and saved because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But either way, I was at that friggin' tower, which is effectively the final dungeon. So I want to see if I can take that save file, cobble together parties that make sense to me now with my Zodiac Age brain, and then plow through to the end of it. The other thing I want to do is do a New Game Plus, which I already started because they make you like immediately create your New Game Plus file on that game for some reason. So I just went ahead and started it and saved. And it's not going to be a challenge at all because I'm on like level 90 or whatever, but I want to just roll for jobs and see what happens because <laughs> that sounds like fun. You are going to have to do your uh, Final Fantasy 13 rant at some point. <laughs> well, I've been meaning to for years now to replay the series and I'm gonna. <laughs> Maybe I'll do that sometime later this year. Um, I'm in the middle of Final Fantasy IV replay. I finally got the PSP version of that on my PSTV. That's a good port of that game. I enjoyed that. It's excellent. And I fully plan on at least trying the After Years, even though it's stupid and dumb. Final Fantasy IV, the After Years. All right. I'm going to describe the After Years in terms of a Netflix show that I just watched. Okay. They just put out, Jim Henson Studios just put out a 10-episode series that is a prequel to The Dark Crystal. All done with puppets and sets that they built by hand. There's an hour and a half long making of documentary they put out about it, which I watched last night. And the loving detail they put into this show and the amount of respect and reverence they had for Jim Henson. Mm -hmm. Like they brought all of the people who worked on the original movie that are still alive and active. They brought all of them back. Right. To do work. And I'm watching this and I had this thought last night. It's like, this is the exact opposite of what Square Enix did with the after years <laughs> they hired just the dumbest most cheeto covered fanboys to write the worst fan fiction and gave them no budget and no direction and said go nuts funny enough though i sort of like that about the after years i like the fan fiction cheesiness of it so here's my experience with the after years i played the wii 
port of it. Did you ever touch that port, or did you play it for the first time on PSP? I full platinumed the Wii episodes, because you had to buy them individually. It was like three bucks an episode over the course of eight months or whatever. Right. So I played the episodes on Wii, and my takeaway was I really enjoyed most of the chapters. I love the little, like, weird vignette style of the chapters. I think I was coming shortly after playing Dragon Quest IV for the first time, which has sort of a similar vibe to it. I mean, it was bad. It was dumb. And the Wii version uses basically the SNES graphics. Like, it has a few improvements, but it's pretty bad looking. (laughs) But then I got to the last chapter and I honestly never finished it. I had the same <laughs> sort of problem I had with Final Fantasy XII. I got to this last dungeon and I was like, eh, I'm kind of not enjoying this anymore. <laughs> you spend 60 hours playing a game. You get most of the way through the final dungeon and that's where you call it. I mean, at that point, I feel like I've seen the game. I'm not one of these people who has to see the ending to feel like I you know, got something out of a game. If I play a game for 60 hours and enjoyed it, then I can be done with it. <laughs> I... <laughs> If, if, if I stop enjoying it, I'm going to stop playing it. And I stopped enjoying Final Fantasy for the After Years because they give you like 65 characters to play with and a five-person per party, and they tell you, go do this enormous dungeon. And I'm like, well, okay, well, I mean, I want my, my boys from the original game, but then I also kind of want to bring Golbez and Cecil's dumb son and, and 18 ninjas. And I'm like... <laughs> Like, why they didn't do the Final Fantasy 3 thing where you make three parties and do something with, like, this interesting huge cast, I'll never know. Because the Final Fantasy 4 engine doesn't support it, and they didn't have any resources to expand the engine at all. God, I've seen people do more complicated things with randomizers. Like, I think they could have figured it out if they cared. So now I have it on PSP, which is this gorgeous port of Final Fantasy IV. Like, it's the level of care that Square never took before or after. And it makes me so sad because all I ever wanted in the world was a Final Fantasy VI port that was given the love and care that Final Fantasy IV got when it comes to the sprite work and the sound and just everything was just so well done. But then they also made it the quote-unquote complete edition, so it's got the after years. Because, again, it's the same engine. It's a lot of the same sprites. You just slap in that data to give you the battle formations and some of the maps, and there you're good. So You will keep us updated, I hope, on your sojourn through the worst fan fiction ever sold. <laughs> okay, so worst fan fiction. Final Fantasy IV or most of the bladder half of the Final Fantasy Thirteen series? Definitely the after years. Yeah. Because the Final Fantasy Thirteen series, I get the sense that there's like a brain in the world somewhere to whom all of these connections make sense. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that exists for the after years. <laughs> well, I mean, they made the after years like 17 years after the original, which is such a weird not round number. But they're like, we're making one now. Yeah, like I feel like if you interviewed the correct Japanese man... After just the right amount of liquor, he might be able to explain, well, yeah, here's when I was writing Final Fantasy thirteen. Like, I had the ideas for Buena Velza and this, like, timeless eternal world where nobody is born or ages. And I was seeding that in at the first game at this point and this point and this point. And I'd be like, oh, you're a crazy person, but I kind of see where you're connecting the dots here. So that's one thing I'd love And it may exist somewhere and I just haven't found it, but I would love to have somebody do just a really in-depth breakdown of the process of making all the Final Fantasy thirteen games and the whole Fabulova, Navala, Chrysalis, whatever. You nailed it. That was it. 
It wasn't actually it. I mean, you, you got close. <laughs> no. Uh, but uh, because I actually went back, after I beat Final Fantasy XV, I went back and looked at the coverage of Final Fantasy versus Thirteen, which was what Final Fantasy XV obviously came from. And I kind of still want to play that game. There was some really interesting stuff with the female character who was more actually going to be an antagonist at one point, and it was all sort of based around the goddess Etro. Like they, that was a big part of it, which obviously plays a big part in thirteen two and Lightning Returns was this whole thing with the goddess of death, and that was actually part of the world building for Versus thirteen. And so they had all this stuff where like they had like basically this death culture built around the goddess Etro, and I don't know all the details because they haven't all come out, but I really want to see how much of what ended up being lightning returns was originally versus 13 how much was created whole cloth how much was tweaked here and there and this sort of works here now and at what point did 13 2 and lightning returns come into full form i wonder if the answers to these questions that you have could ever be satisfying i don't know if they would be satisfying like satisfying is the wrong word like i don't need an answer and then i go ah you know, but I still kind of want to hear the director talk about it. And if it is just they told us to make a 13-2 because we need to sell a game, so we did it. That's still a creative process. That's still, hey, we have a deadline, let's hit it. That can still drive crazy good creativity. I mean, Mega Man 2 was made after hours while they made some crappy game no one remembered. <laughs> That's still a really interesting story of creativity to me. I do wonder if somewhere, like you say, there is just like a mythology Bible for the 13 series. But even the 13 series, which does have these connections, and there is probably somewhere a consciousness that understands the connections. When I play those games, I get the sense that they were just commercial products. Like you say, hey, we got the memo to make 13 too, so that's what we had to do, versus... Did somebody actually painstakingly do all this world building as a labor of love? Here's what I suspect happened. And this is my honest opinion. Is they made 13. 13 was a modest success, but I mean, it didn't burn the world down. And they had these two other games that they've been working on forever. They had Versus 13 and 13 whatever the school kids one ended up being. Type 0 whatever. They had these two games that they were sort of treading water. And I think what happened was... They were basically told, look, Versus 13 isn't going to happen, or it's going to become 15 or something. And I know you want this to be part of your world, and I know you want it to have all these connections to Bunavelza and the Goddess Cetro and whatever else was going to be in there that didn't end up being in there. And they said, we can't do that. Here's what you can do. You can use the engine you already have. You can make 13-2, and you can use whatever elements you think you can salvage to put it in there. My guess is 13-2 and Lightning Returns have a lot of elements that were originally going to be in these other games, but they became the 13 trilogy because we need to reuse these engines and these assets to make these happen. So I think it's about 50-50, get your stuff out the door, and this was our original story bible. I think I just have a very hard time accepting that somewhere, someone really cares about... (laughs) Like the story of the 13 series. It's such a minor element of the games as you play them. No, it's so good. I mean, it's bad, but it's so good. I I will rephrase my statement. I have a hard time believing anybody except McLean. (laughs) The 13 series is, it's a cluster, but I love the cluster. And like, I actually got like emotional at the end of Lightning Returns because against all odds, 
they managed to give it a satisfying ending, to me at least. You might think it was dumb, but I liked it. I read a book recently, and that was amazing, because when's the last time you've like read a book? Man, I've been doing audiobooks for the last like three years. Yeah, I didn't listen to an audiobook. I didn't load it up on my Kindle or my phone. I like bought mm. this. So what it is, it's like this a whole bunch of paper, like with hard paper around it. And you can open it, and, like, every piece of paper has words on it. The same words? No, 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 they're different words arranged in, like... (laughs) Different words on every page. So, the reason I bought this book, it was recommended to me by some friends. Because I I asked for recommendations. I'm like, I'm I'm in the market for to get into a new book. Like, what do you got? You can't listen to the audiobook. You can't read this on your phone. You have to get the physical book. Otherwise, it doesn't work. So, I went on Amazon.com and I spent money and bought a book called House of Leaves. Uh Uh-huh. And I read it, and now we have to talk about it. (laughs) My thought reading the book, this happened twice. My thought reading the book is, coming through this book, I'm like, I'm picturing people in my head, in my life, that I know have read this book. Mm -hmm. We've never discussed it before, but just knowing the kind of book it is and that it exists... (laughs) So I go to my D&D group and I, I'm like, this person in my D&D group is going to like get really excited. And it happened. I said, I read House of Leaves and she goes, oh, best book ever. <laughs> and then I go to my Sunday D&D, totally different group of people all online or on right. Discord. And I said, I read House of Leaves and the guy that I knew was going to do it went, oh, best book ever. <laughs> <laughs> have, have you read this book, McLean? Have you read House of Leaves? I have read this book. Do you agree with the assessment that you have to read the book? You can't listen to it. You can't put it on your Kindle or your phone. I don't know that this book exists outside of a physical paper form, and I don't know how it could. It might exist on Kindle, but I'm 90% sure I looked for it on audiobook because I was just morbidly curious and couldn't find it. Uh, Just a quick Google search. I don't think there's an official audiobook, but it looks like there's a YouTube series. Right. People, there was an attempt to make a fan-like adaptation of it. So for those of you who don't know, and I don't know, let's just throw up a blanket spoiler warning now. I don't know how much we're going to get into the plot, but for those who don't know, House of Leaves is basically meta the book. The book itself is a piece of meta text. There's a story within a story within a story. I, I don't know. how. I forget how many layers there are. There's at least two main stories, and the book itself is designed to be like a living document supposed to look like somebody has typed out something and then scratched out things and put stuff in the margins and then there's parts where you have to like turn the book because the words are twisting around the page it's uh i'm just gonna say it's obnoxious actually the term in video games for this kind of thing is the interface screw okay like say undertale does this at the end where the guy you're fighting the last boss and he goes ah i'm gonna i'm gonna hit you and then immediately saves your game so you can't reload and get your health back ah it's screwed with the interface right 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 and house of leaves does this with text yes i'm going to try to just very briefly summarize the various layers of the book the core of the book is a film like a critical analysis of a film and that's most of what you're reading in the book so it's very dry there's lots of footnotes and the layer above that is a person who has found that author's notes right and is trying to compile them So you've got at least three layers. You've got the original incident that happened. Then you've got a movie that was made about that incident. 
Then you've got the guy writing the analysis about the movie. And then you've got the guy compiling the notes that the author wrote. So maybe four layers, I guess. There's at least one more layer where you get elements of psychological analysis about the guy who you're reading, who's compiling the notes because he apparently goes crazy or something. There's even some meta on top of that. And then there's maybe even a layer above that because the book you're actually holding is supposed to be the book that was written by the guy who found the notes. And that book also exists in the texts at one point so the, like the last layer is also the first layer maybe i don't know right is like a, a mobius strip onion is what this book is it <laughs> given that the book is about a spooky house and the family that lives there and it's about a drug addict whose life is falling apart both of these stories i thought were very interesting i liked them a lot and i don't agree that any of the interface screw stuff helps i could have gotten these stories from an audiobook no problem i think that the book tries to do entirely too much i think that you could have had a multi-layered book with some of the meta elements the parts i found the most fascinating was that they created fake real documents like scans of old pictures and stuff like that of the quote-unquote real house and you had some sketches which were supposed to be like from the people who were living in the house and i thought the story of the house was interesting i thought the layer on top of it of the guy trying to research it also going kind of insane from researching helped it my main thing was the actual form of it the dryness of some of the film analysis was super hard to get through. <laughs> and some of the physical, like, this page is supposed to look like it was splattered with ink or partially burned, and I can't read half the words. I'm like, come on, dude, just let me read your freaking book. There's a chapter in the book where he, he's describing a part of this house where the guy has to get on his hands and knees and crawl through this tunnel. And the way this is represented in the book is that all of the text on the page is squished into just a little square on the page. That only holds maybe 10 or so words. So for 50 pages or so, you're reading like a couple words per page and you're flipping and you're flipping and you're flipping. And what the author wanted was you to feel the character's claustrophobia being pressed upon into this little space in the middle of this big space. The reaction I actually had was, oh, I get it. See, that didn't bother me as much. The stuff where he was doing some stuff with the shapes of the text blocks didn't bother me because I'm kind of a, I'm a, I have a typography background. Some of that stuff I thought was interesting. It was the parts where he was literally obscuring the text that pissed me off. And the parts where I had to literally rotate or there were parts where he chopped up the text so much where I was having trouble figuring out where the paragraph ended and where it began. I actually probably had more of a problem with the dry parts because this was the first book I read post-graduating, having going back to school. So I went back to school and got a lit degree, and I was like, okay, I'm going to read something for fun now. I don't have to read Shakespeare or Hemingway today. I can read something new and fun. And then I end up reading footnotes. <laughs> and I'm like, I feel like I'm reading an academic text. <laughs> Well, it, it is an academic text. It's I didn't want to read an academic text. There's like a part where he has 10 pages where he just like lists um, architects or something. There de definitely does have that quality to it where it's very difficult to read because it is very dry. It's written as an academic text. And so there's footnotes and some of the footnotes have footnotes. And at least two people have gotten their hands on this text since the author. You've got the guy compiling the notes and then you've got his editors who will also add in footnotes. So sometimes you'll get a page 
where the original author has a footnote and then the compiler guy says, this isn't right. Here's the actual thing. And then the editor will be like, this isn't right. Here's the actual thing. And now you're four layers deep in footnotes and you don't even remember what page you were on to begin with. The footnotes did do one of the more interesting things where it violated the timeline of the book in a way that made me really uncomfortable. It was like, because supposedly the people making the footnotes to the footnotes had the book after the guy had gone crazy. I forget if he kills himself or what (laughs) happens, but basically he's not supposed to have the book anymore. But there's definitely points where he makes a footnote, the academic or the editor makes a footnote on the footnote, and then he comes back and says, nuh-uh. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) And And it actually made me really uncomfortable. Like I had like kind of a kind of a, wait, hold on, did I just read that right kind of moment? And that was effective, actually. Sometimes it can be effective, but just as often it'll be something like the academic text will have a footnote, and then the compiler guy will say, oh, this is in the appendix. He doesn't give a page number, so you got to flip back to the table of contents. What page is this appendix on? Okay, it's on page 612, and you got to flip all the way back to 612. They did this with... A poem called The Song of Quesado and Milano. Sure. It's supposed to be some kind of Spanish poem that is relevant to the book somehow. And they mention it a few times. And then at one point, the footnote of the footnote says, see appendix such and such. And I flip to the index or the table of context. Oh, it's going to be The Song of Quesada and Milano. I'm finally going to see what relevance this has. So I've got two bookmarks in, in the book now. I flip back to the Appendix C or whatever it is. At the title, it's headed, The Song of Quesada and Milano. And it's a blank page, and it's a footnote. And at the bottom, the footnote just reads, Missing. Why? (laughs) Why did you do that to me? What's the point of that? And there's a lot of stuff in the book like that. Like, he did this kind of... Just to be meta, but without having a point. And the thing is, the actual story, if the actual story had been like a novella by Stephen King about this creepy house that basically eats people, I would have been like, that was really interesting. That was really weird. It it might not have been as effective without some of the meta layers, but I feel like the core story of the creepy house was pretty good. It was on like Goodreads or something. I think I ended up giving it like three stars out of five. And I basically said, this is a good book that I kind of hated. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good book that nobody should read. (laughs) Right, exactly. The major thing that the book does, like the major meta thing that it does, is it uses different colors for certain words. Every instance of the word house in the book is printed in blue ink. First of all, the shade of blue that they chose it's not very poppy no it's a midnight blue yeah if you're in the correct lighting it can just look like the other ink on the page i read the whole book cover to cover all the footnotes there's a whole just glossary of at the end called the pelican poems just all of these completely irrelevant poems that i have no idea why i read all of those (laughs) i can't even formulate a theory as to why the word house is printed in blue text. It's one of those things where like, I thought it was interesting at first. I was like, oh, that's interesting. It makes the word pop, but it's not like in bright red, it's in blue. So you could almost miss it. But then I was kind of had the same thing. I was like, why is it blue? When you do stuff like that, if there is a reason, like if the author had a reason to put the word house in blue, 
it was completely ineffective because as a reader, I wasn't able to plug that in. And I've done a little bit of research online, like forum threads. The book's 20 years old now. It's been out for a long time. Hmm. And nobody else has like a coherent theory of this either. Like lots of people have ideas, but as far as anybody knows, like nobody has latched onto the why of it. So if the author had a reason, it didn't work. If the author didn't have a reason, and I think this is more likely, I think he just said it will be cool to do this and let people think about why I did it. And I detest that kind of thought. <laughs> I cannot abide it when a creator just makes a random decision that affects the entire text. The sole purpose of making people ask why the question why is not satisfying in any way. Why does this author want to confound me? On one hand, I kind of hate when people, like when J.K. Rowling is constantly talking about her book in ways that like you don't need. But on the other hand, I kind of want, I don't need the answer. I just kind of want to know like that there's a reason he did this. And I don't know that there is. That's just the most uh, like egregious example from... The books, And you're right, this is something we've discussed before with, like, J.K. Rowling and her books, and she can't stop talking about them, and the death of the author line, like, where do we draw that? I think with something like House of Leaves, it almost goes too far in the other direction. I felt reading the text that the story was actually pretty simple. Yeah, it's a remarkably simple Yeah, book. I felt like the book was trying to distract me from that. Like, maybe he wasn't confident enough that a simple story could be enjoyable I have to write this really complex narrative, but oh, I don't really have an idea for a complex narrative. Wait a minute, I know, I can write all these pages backwards. <laughs> Around the time I got House of Leaves, there was another book that was new, and I saw the author on The Daily Show, and I got this book, but I have not actually read it yet. It's been sitting on my shelf. It's just called S. I can't even Google this book. The letter S. Yeah, if you just put an S novel, it comes up. It's supposed to be it's a story within a story. It's designed to look like a library book. I haven't actually read it yet. I need to sit down and read it now that we've talked about House of Leaves to see how they compare. Because I remember thinking, this sounds like House of Leaves. Maybe it's going to be a better version of it. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we will have to read this book and then do a book report segment in our next episode. Hey, that podcast we did, Book Club? <laughs> <laughs> That's something I've actually thought about doing just like with my discord like can we just set up a book club and people read books here's why i haven't done it i think there was value to my having read house of leaves even though it aggravated me quite a lot right so i'm afraid like one month i'll be like okay i get to pick the book this month everybody can go ahead and read this kind of thoughtful intellectual book that's going to take us on a journey and spark these discussions about meta and then the next guy is going to be like i picked a book about panties anime <laughs> And now I have to read it because he already read my book. <laughs> well, see, the way you solve that is by just picking all the books. This is my book club. I will make you read books. That's what books. Oprah does. <laughs> and I guess it's been working for her. I need to take a cue from Oprah. So what did you think about Oxenfree? Because I know you haven't played Life is Strange yet, but what did you think about I Oxenfree? I loved Oxenfree. I was very... The only thing I didn't like about Oxenfree is that I played the majority of it on my Switch in the portable mode. Mm -hmm. And we've already had that discussion. <laughs> So that's interesting that you opted for playing down the Switch, because I actually played that one on the PC, but I think I had it from Epic gave it away for free, or I bought it in a game in a pack years ago. I don't remember. It was just on my computer already. <laughs> so what I think I liked about Oxenfree is it 
actually managed to do creepy, not super scary. There were a couple jump scares, but it managed to do like really creepy gameplay, really creepy soundscape, especially the sound design is excellent with a 2D game. And that's not easy to do, I don't think. I really got sucked into the world, and I really got sucked into walking around with my radio on, scanning the dial, looking for just these random snippets of speeches that would be on loops or these random whispers that would come through. And it just something about the soundscape, I think, really made that game work so well. Combined with when they used the effects, like them, them doing the screen tearing and stuff, when stuff would go weird was really well done. Or just randomly a wolf would appear on your screen for like a frame. <laughs> Are you sure that wasn't a glitch? No. <laughs> but there were definitely a couple things that happened. I was like, did my computer just lock up? But it was like, it was part of the game. I'm pretty sure. I feel like the main core of Oxenfree is it kind of sets you up. You're in this isolated area. There are ghosts. There's a mystery. You get separated. But over the course of the game, you have the opportunity to develop a connection with some of the characters, but not all mm -hmm. of the characters. Like, there's no way to win Oxenfree. You can't get to the end and see the best ending. All you can get is get to the end and see your ending. And... It felt different from something like Until Dawn, where you can get to the end and you see your ending, but your ending clearly isn't the best one. I've not played Until Dawn. Should I put that on my list or is it not worth playing? I liked Until Dawn, but it's a QTE game. Ah. Uh. And your choices through the game is you can either get to the end and your choices or your failures, I guess, if you want to look at it that way is who gets killed by the murderer. Ah. <laughs> and if you do the right thing, you can get to the end of the game with a minimum number of deaths. There's like an actual goal to reach. I've seen people describe Oxenfree in that same way because there's a character who's dead and one of the endings allows you to reshape time so the character is alive again. That's kind of seen as the best ending that you're striving for. But I actually think the ending that I got was much better than that. Like, if I had to choose between the two. Yeah, I got the ending where the only thing I didn't like about my ending was I actually managed to alienate my best friend character. Other than that, I had developed a really good bond with my stepbrother and like two couples had formed or something. I don't know. I got really irritated because basically there's a decision point and your best friend wants to come with you. But then also your new stepbrother wants to come with you. And I left my best friend thinking I'm leaving him with the girl he has a crush on. And they never gave me a chance to say, hey, stay with her, dumbass. And of course, if you do that, they develop a relationship by the end of the game. I don't know if that's the only way to do it. Like, I think there's a few inflection points. But so they're like, oh, yeah, our relationship's strained now. And I was like, no, that was supposed to. I was trying to wingman him, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I had almost the same trajectory. But I had a different reaction to that trajectory because mm -hmm. I, I realized very early on, okay, the game has introduced all the characters and I'm going to have to select one of them to be like my main sidekick. And I also chose the stepbrother character. Right. In the game's universe, before the game kind of sucked me in, I had this thought like, if I was actually inhabiting this world and making a decision based on which of these characters need me the most, that guy does. Right. He was definitely the one who I think you needed each other the most at that point. Your best friend dude who's high on brownies can just stay in the tower and keep after himself. And this is something I think the game does really, really well. 
is you have your best friend character and they don't really go into why he's your best friend or how long you've been friends. It's just, you've known him forever. He's your guy. You go out here. One of the conversation branches, and again, I have no idea how much conversation is optional, but one of the conversation branches, he says something like literally, you know, took baths together old. So I had a reaction playing the game. Like, I didn't like this guy. After a couple scenes, we're like, oh, we're in danger. I'm going to go ahead and eat all my pot brownies now. Yeah, he's a dumbass. I, the player, didn't like this guy. And I didn't want to side with him because of that. And the way that the game portrayed that in terms of, like, the heroine's reactions was, like, she was coming to the realization, like, oh, my best friend is kind of a wank. Yeah, they did a good job of having her feeling like you could definitely see her kind of thinking like, wow, this is kind of an ending for this friendship in a lot of ways, you know? So it's another game like Until Dawn, if you make a choice and then so-and-so's girlfriend dies, like, oh, she's just dead now. But the rest of the game carries on and doesn't really care that she died. Mm. Oxenfree did a very good job of making your choices feel fluid as though the character were making the choices in the world like there's a reason that she will trust her stepbrother over her best friend for 20 years in this situation and the reason is he's kind of a wank and this is just the first life or death situation they've been in where she kind of notices that so did you ever loop the game oh yeah Oh, okay, so you did loop the game. Because mm-hmm. I think when I originally talked to you after playing the game, you didn't realize you could loop it. Maybe I'm misunderstanding. Do you mean I went back and found all the little newspaper snippets and everything? No, no, I'm saying did you do essentially a new game plus? Did you replay the game? No, because I was satisfied with the ending. And I'm like, you know what? <laughs> so when you beat the game, the game's kind of a closed loop. The, the end of the game funnels right to the beginning of the game. Um, Because the whole thing is about time slipping and time inverting on itself and having a bunch of like reruns happening. And so when you beat the game, it goes back to the beginning of the game, which at first I was like, oh, that's kind of a cute Twilight Zone-y kind of way of ending it. But if you go back to the menu, instead of saying start, it says um, restart or reload or something like that. And if you do that, you play through the game a second time. And the game knows you're playing through a second time. And so little subtle things will change and it references and basically you can play the game through again and make different decisions. But it gives you, like you were saying, it gives you a different, not totally satisfying ending. And you can play the game as many times as you want and never get the completely satisfying ending. But when you do replay it, the game acknowledges that you're playing it again. And the spirits that you're talking to talk about all the Alexes says you're just one Alex. And so it does a little bit of meta text to it, but it's not really saying this is a video game and you're playing another Alex. It's playing in this universe. You are one of many multiverse Alexes who has made these decisions before. And one thing that you can do is if you play it through new game plus again, there's points where you can find radios. You can send signals out to try to try to get signals out. And the very last radio you can get, you can send a signal out and you basically say, Alex, don't come. Then there's a post-credit sequence where you are before getting on the boat and Alex gets this message basically randomly that says, don't come to the island. And then you can decide whether or not to come to the island. And if you don't go to the island, supposedly nothing happens. But even that's not a satisfying ending because that's just one Alex. It's not that you destroy the loop. You just get one Alex out. Like, it's just one possible multiverse, and even that's unsatisfying, because then you still have Alex and her stepbrother who don't have this bonding moment. Yeah, man, my reaction to all that is the same as my reaction to the, like, claustrophobia chapter of House of Leaves. Like, oh, I get it. Yeah. And that's it. No, I mean, and I can see that, and I think that it's a good game because it works 
both ways. It works if you play through it the one time and you get your ending and you say, that was really satisfying. There is one more title in this genre that I've played. I feel like in your journey, you're going to have to experience it. What's that? The Stanley Parable. I've played Stanley Parable. Uh, no, I, lo- I love Stanley Parable. Stanley Parable has some of the problems that House of Leaves has, where it's kind of doing things just to do it. But I feel like it does it with comedy instead of like super seriousness. And so that makes it more palatable. Right. If you're doing it in service of a joke, there doesn't have to be an explanation. The joke is the explanation. Right. I mean, and the joke of the game is it knows it's a game. Like, that's basically the premise. Like, it's a game that knows it's a game. And it's a game about finding the different endings. Because it's a game that knows it's a game and it's done in comedy with a cute British narrator, I think that it works a lot better than, like, the House of Leaves thing where it's like, and now I'm going to have footnotes upon footnotes about architecture. Seven pages of footnotes. <laughs> Should we develop like an endless footnote maze for our show notes for this episode? <laughs> I, no. <laughs> I poop while I use my phone, so I'm not looking to lick it. <laughs> I'd be more worried about your wife walking in during the recording and you're just making out with your cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> then you have to explain yourself and then you're divorced. <laughs>